you people. I just love hanging out with you guys. If you have your Bibles, this is one of the things that we do. <clears throat> I have you. Now, now I have my Bible on electronic, so <laughs> I'm carrying this one too. I'm a child of God. Having my hand, the powerful Word of God. Can change lives, heal broken hearts, save man's soul. Lord Jesus, today. Speak to me in Jesus' name. Amen. Reach over there and hug your neighbor and tell them that you care about them. If you're sitting by yourself, we'll get up and walk around and hug somebody. All right. All right. It's very important that we... That we... Uh, love each other it's very important if there's if there's nothing that happens in your life at church sunday to sunday to sunday to sunday is you need to at least experience god's love when you come here Amen. and i've challenged you from day one and i will continue to challenge you as we march through the year we want to become an ephesians 4 Church. Ephesians 4, the latter part of that chapter, let no unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but such words that are good for the moment to build up the body. So we don't want to gossip. We don't want to backbite. We don't want to nitpick. We don't want to do any of that stuff. We want to encourage each other. You get enough of that outside. Amen. Just Monday morning when you walk in, there's going to be that one person that does that, that is a discourager in your life is going to meet you at the door. You know that happens. Or that email. Or that, you know. So at church, of all places, let's make sure that whatever we say is laced with grace, mercy, and encouragement. And the more we do that, the more the kingdom of God will be blessed. Because there's plenty of the other going around. Plenty of the other. So that Ephesians 4 church, that's the kind of church we want to be. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Good, good. We'll keep doing our best. People say, well, tell me about your church, Pastor. I say, well, we're just a bunch of people who are imperfect. <laughs> and we're doing our best to get through life and striving to become perfect in Christ. And so, if you're looking for an imperfect group of people to hang out with, man, come join us. <laughs> if you're looking for a perfect place where people don't have problems and don't mess up, I, maybe I'll go on down to the other church. I don't, I, well, don't join that one because you might mess it up. So, you know, we've all got our struggles. Amen? Amen? And the good news is we can struggle together. But we can also speak well to each other. And I pray that we will do that. And we'll take every opportunity to do it. Wrestling with life. We're talking about that this month. And uh, I want to uh, focus you today on the pitfalls of, of wealth. The pitfalls of riches. Kind of doing a lot of different things this month. We're going to hit a lot of different areas. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Last week Paul talked to Timothy about uh, him being strong and staying with it and don't give up. And today he talks to Timothy some more. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 6, 
the verse we read earlier will be a part of this, but verses 3 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, open there, and uh, let's read together. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy and division, slander and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. (laughs) Yet, I'm in verse 6, yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything with us when we leave. I think a modern day uh, translation of that would be, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul to the graveside. <laughs> verse 8, so if we have enough food and clothing, let's be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Here we go, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people, craving money, have wandered from their true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Never truer statements made. That love of money. It's not money that's the problem. It's the love of money. Finally, some commentator in a national football game said they're a bunch of overpaid, underworked, whining football players. And they are. If you pay a guy $45 million, I don't care who he is, he ought to hit a home run every time. But guess what? They don't do that. Well, if you pay that guy $20 million, he ought to be able to score a touchdown. If you throw the football to him, he ought to be able to catch it. Well, I saw a whole bunch of them dropping it yesterday. I think they ought to put a clause in their contract. If you drop a pass, that's ten grand, baby. You're gone. Don't you think they'll catch more of them? In fact, we've got coaches in our church here that for every time you drop it, they get ten thousand dollar increase in salary. I was waiting. I was waiting. <laughs> I've never seen a coach pray so much. Lord, drop that ball. Drop that ball. Money's an important topic. Jesus talked a lot about it. 16 of the 38 parables were concerned about how we handle money and possession. In the Gospels, there's an amazing 1 out of 10 verses. That's 288 and all. 1 out of 10 deal directly with the subject of money. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Haddon Robinson was a former president of Denver Seminary, said this, For every verse in the Bible that tells us the benefits of wealth, there are ten that tell us the danger of wealth. Well, guess what? Our text this morning speaks to the dangers. It's been said that there are three things that uh, will always get a preacher. (laughs) Wealth, wine, what's the third one? Women. (laughs) Stay with the W there. (laughs) Wealth, wine, and women. They'll get a preacher every time. 
Paul's letter to Timothy is, I don't know why I put that in, I just throw it in there. Paul's letter to Timothy is, is to warn him about the pitfalls of wealth. But it also points to one of the most common traits that seems to characterize many false teachers and those that are among us today. And it's that inordinate focus on wealth. Put in another way, pure greed. Pure greed. From the outset, let's agree that there's no spiritual virtue that's associated with poverty. And there's no inherent wickedness associated with wealth. The Bible is replete with wealthy people. Abraham was a wealthy person. David was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. Lydia, Philemon, and other godly people in the Scripture were wealthy. The problem is not having wealth. The problem is making it the goal or the aim of your life. It's not the problem when we possess wealth. It's a problem when wealth possesses us. Now we see in our text today a description. A description of what a greedy man looks like. The first thing I want you to notice is that false teachers embrace false doctrine. Notice three things about false teaching. They don't agree. First of all, they don't agree with sound words. Their teachings are in contradiction to that which is wholesome and healthy. Their teachings lead to ruin instead of life. Why is that? Because false teaching is usually based on a half-truth. On an incomplete truth. So their words cannot be sound. False teachers take Scripture out of context. Paul describes them in 2 Timothy 4.3 where he says, For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside... To myths. False teaching can come in different shapes and sizes. There are some false teachings out there about the person of who Christ is. Many don't believe, some believe he's just a, a man like anybody else. Not Messiah, not Savior, not any of that. There's, oh, and I love this, the anti Trinitarian. Boy, how's that one? <laughs> Took me all week to learn that. All that is, is, is the person who says, that there's not three in God, there's only one. You and I believe there's three. The Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. There you go. In most circles, they'll be pictured like a triangle, right? And who's at the top? God's at the top. He should always be at the top. <laughs> and when He's not at the top, things don't seem to work as well, do they? Well, at least that's been my experience. There is a salvation that comes by work instead of grace through faith. We need to understand that when you accept Christ as your Savior, it's all He asks you to do. is come, open your heart, pour your heart, and when you pour your heart and stand before men and confess Him before men, He says, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. So when you're under conviction, Acts 2 is a great picture of that at the end latter part of, of uh, or about the middle section uh, toward the end there of uh, Acts 2, after Peter's preached the great sermon at Pentecost, and he says, this same Jesus you crucified, it says, they were pierced to the heart. You see, if your heart doesn't change at all, anything else you do is not going to help, including baptism, it's not going to help you. 
Now, in the Christian church, I would probably be thrown out for that. <laughs> because they're heavy emphasis on baptism. I, I grew up in Acapella Church of Christ. I mean, you, you baptize them before you did anything else to them. The old phrase I grew up with, if you're not baptized, you're lost. It takes a lot to get that ungrained out of your life. I met some Baptist guys that helped me understand that. I argue with Richard Talley every day. <laughs> I argue with him. I said, you're lost, brother. You don't even have baptism. Party. He said, man, I, I, have, I have baptism. I said, well, why are you doing baptism? Anyway, we had all kinds of stuff going on. But my emphasis was wrong. Because if you look at that story, the heart changed. So when the heart changes, whatever else you need to do, it's not a problem. Amen? There you go. So we need to bear that in mind as we go along, and especially as we look at this today. But salvation comes by works, not, not by grace. Also, inspiration and the infallibility of the Word of God. So there's so many people today that don't believe the Word of God is the infallible Word of God. I thought it was interesting the other day in the memorial service in Tucson, Arizona, that our national official stood up and did what? Read from this? Where have they been <laughs> for two years? Don't wait for a tragedy to go to this. Typical though, isn't it? You ought to be going to this before you make a decision. <laughs> Might help you. Because you know, once they do that, it makes you, it's suspect to me. I keep thinking, hmm, I wonder why they haven't, I heard, I haven't heard this from them before. Well, we like to keep our faith private. Well, I'm sorry. Jesus said you can't keep yourself your faith private. Acts chapter 1, he says, be my... I'll hold up. Be my... Witness. One more time. Be my... Witness. Yeah. You got to witness. Hello. Hello. You got to witness. You got to talk to somebody. You got to tell somebody. You can't sit around and hope it happens. Well, there's too many Christians. They, All this false doctrine. These people, they're teaching in Ephesus where Paul's writing Timothy. He says that if you came to Jesus, this teaching in Ephesus, if you came to Jesus, you would become rich. Hmm. Let me stop a minute. That sounds vaguely familiar. <laughs> Very familiar words I'm hearing. That if you, if you have faith, <sighs> He will make you rich. I don't have any cash. I just got... But he will make, He'll give you that green stuff, right? What's well, going around? And the result of false doctrine is always the same unless the church confronts it head on and follows the advice of that sage, wise man, Barney Fife. Who says, you got to nip it in the bud. That's right. That's right. When something rises that's wrong, nip it in the bud. Amen. Or, don't, or what do we do? We push it under the carpet. Don't want to deal with it. Don't hurt anybody's feelings. How sad is that? And we spend time in the church. And that's why I keep saying we need to be Ephesians 4, man. We've got to be that way. Because we spend too much time in the church worrying about everybody else's business. 
Go look in the mirror. If you ain't got enough business to deal with in the mirror, you're in trouble. Spend about 10 minutes with me. I'll, I'll, I'll share some things with you. Go ask your husband or wife. Or, or do you catch them singing that song in the shower? Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Yeah. Yeah, I've asked Cindy one time in 33 years if I'm perfect. <laughs> I got out of the hospital about a week later. <clears throat> it was ugly. False teaching that goes unchecked will always result in division. Especially within the church. Can you imagine if someone who you had respect for, and many, many members of the church had respect for, started teaching a health and wealth gospel here at this church? Well, it would create problems. So false teachers, they've embraced a doctrine that runs contrary to the teachings of Jesus. The second thing you notice about them is that they don't agree with the words of Jesus. False teachers often use the words of Jesus, but they take them out of context. They twist them, distort them, spin them to fit that personal agenda, whatever that might be. And one of the ways that we can identify false teachers is by comparing what they say to what the Scriptures say. Amen? They may give you one verse out of here, but I want you to go do the five and five. Go five before and five after, and I'll guarantee it may not say what they just told you it said. Let this speak for itself. It's fine. God's been doing it for a long time. Okay? I think He can handle anything that comes up. Let Him do it. Let Him do it. Third thing I want you to know about false teachers is they, they don't, their teachings don't lead to godliness. They don't lead people to a life of faithfulness or reverence to God. They lead to sin and self. You'll notice about faith, wealth, faith guys, they want you to seed your money into their ministry and they say God will return to you tenfold what you put into their ministry. Yeah. Next time you get a call like that, say, hey, I've listened to your principles, I've read your books, and I believe with all of my heart that you should seed into my ministry. So if you'll send me $100, God's going to return tenfold to you. <laughs> Click. <laughs> well, if it works on one side, why doesn't it work on the second side? Interesting. <clears throat> Interesting. False teaching almost always leads to the pursuit of pleasures in this life rather than the treasures of the life to come. It always leads people away from God and towards something or someone else. Because of our fallen, sinful position in nature, we will always choose what man has to offer unless we are full of the Holy Spirit that allows us to choose what God wants us to choose. Second thing I want you to see from our text is that false teachers cause fierce, fierce division. They're conceited. They understand nothing. It's a pride that's unbelievable. They think they know everything. They have a very unteachable spirit. Do you understand what I say without unteachable spirit? Parents, you've got some kids like that in your house, don't you? They get to a certain level in age. They've attained this age. And all of a sudden, you can't teach them anything. You're dumb under brick. You were just a brick before, now you're dumber than a brick. <clears throat> Some of you are smiling, I think you understand what I'm saying. 
Kids are going, what, what's he talking about? <laughs> yeah. That unteachable spirit can, can really cause problems. The, the apostle is describing an attitude of arrogance. One in which sees self as the only true authority. All of our coaches in our church, if you had a player playing for you who knows more than you at 15, 16, 17 years old, how much do they get to play on your team? Their parents accuse you of singling out their child. Oh, if you only knew how great this child was. The problem is they may have great ability. They might. They might very well have great ability. But it's the attitude that comes with it. <clears throat> we don't want to play them. You can't trust them. You can't trust them. What are you going to do? In a, what are you going to do if they're in a the foxhole with you? You think they're going to stand up and rush the rush the group? Oh no. You go, man, I'll be right behind you. And you look back and there ain't nobody there. <laughs> Five results of, of division in the church come from these people. He goes in that text. He tells us envy. That's that inward discontent rising from the desire to have what belongs to another person. He, Paul talks about strife, that discord. It's, it's an interesting word in the Greek. It's the same word that they get, the, the word eris. It's a proper name. It was the name of the Greek goddess who was the personification of strife. According to Greek mythology, she gave birth to work, forgetfulness, hunger, pain, battles, fights, murders, killings, quarrels, lies, disputes, lawlessness, and ruin. One woman. <laughs> it was she who, according to Homer, started the Trojan War. This is the word that Paul uses to describe the result of false teaching in the church. Same word. Third is abusive language. Literally, the word blasphemies is here. Not blaspheming God, but each other. Fourth one, evil suspicions, he says. Calling one another's motives into question. Well, I wonder what they're up to. I'm disappointed when somebody decides not to attend our church. Maybe they've been here for a while. They chose choose to leave and go somewhere else. If they give me an opportunity to talk to them, I do. I take every opportunity I can. Sometimes they won't give me that chance. I call, I call, I, I beg, I ask them to let me buy dinner or whatever. Because I'm, I'm truly, seriously concerned about what would cause a person to leave a church. And normally, when they do get that meeting with them, it's so general that you, you, you leave there going, well, have a nice day. That's it. Because you never really get to the root issue, do you? Have you discovered that in, in the relationships that you have when people kind of quit hanging out with you? They don't really want to tell you what's wrong because they really don't want to hurt you, but yet they don't want to... You see what I'm saying? So we've got to be people that speak good things. And we don't need to suspect evil. That's Satan. Satan is an evil suspector. He likes to stir things, doesn't he? He just loves to do it. The last one is constant friction. It's a state of being where false teachers are not confronted. False teachers have three personality traits. Depraved minds. They think upon the baser things. The things of the flesh rather than upon things of the spirit. They're deprived of the truth. 
They've been robbed of the truth by believing the lies they teach. Their own teaching has robbed them of the truth. Jim Jones, David Koresh, those are guys that should be vivid examples of this type of thing. And the third trait they display is they're driven by a perverted sense of godliness. Their motivation is money and the false promises it holds. If you'll seed into my ministry, God's going to bless you. Well, how about you seed into mine and let God bless you? They don't, they don't want to talk about that. Sad. Third thing I want you to see from our text today is that these false teachers are victims of deception. There's four areas of deception that they struggle with. In verse 5, latter part of verse 5 and verse 6, it says this, To them a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy, yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. So they, first of all, they deceived, they're deceived into be, believing that God will make them materialistically rich. If, you, if you're a preacher, been a preacher for any length of time, you ought to be making tons of money. I had a guy tell me one time, he said, how much do you make? I told him, he goes, you ought to be making twice that much. You've been in the ministry how long? I said, oh, I didn't know length of time equated money. So you guys have been coaching 10, 15 years. What you whining about money about? Amen. I'll just Those of you have been in your jobs for 10, 15 years. Why, wow, you're making triple what the CEO makes at that company, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I wish. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, they believe that godliness is a means of financial gain. They're driven by their devotion to greed, not to Jesus. The, the health and wealth preachers of our day tell us that since we are children of the King, we should live like princes and they, that, that anyone living a, a pauper's life is simply not right with God. What a bunch of hooey. They are secondly deceived into making earth their home instead of heaven. Look at verses 6 through 8 again. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. We can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, be content. Be content. What else do you need? What else do you need? Don't need it. I don't need it. Godliness is itself the treasure. It brings peace, joy, fulfillment. Godlessness is the wrong way to go. Godliness with great contentment is great gain. You can't take it with you. <laughs> Never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Haven't seen it yet. You can't take it with you. Matthew 5, 19-21, Jesus says, So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, then you're subject to judgment. For the Christian, God plus the basic necessities should be all sufficient. All you need. Rich young ruler's problem was not that he had wealth, but that the wealth had him. Read a story that's back in 1996. A guy named Buddy Post is in the Chicago Tribune. He became living proof that money can't buy happiness. In 1988, he won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery. Since he won that, he was convicted of assault. 
his sixth wife left him. His brother was convicted of trying to kill him. And his landlady successfully sued him for one-third of the jackpot. Money doesn't, didn't change me, insisted Buddy Post. At that time, a 58-year-old carnival worker and cook. It changed people around me that I knew that I thought cared a little bit about me, but they only cared about the money. Now I hear people all the time say, boy, if I could just win that lottery, if I could just win that lottery. And then they say, well, preacher, we're going to take care of the church. We're doing okay. But I always like to follow that statement with, okay, and when you do, I'm going to come find you. And all God wants is 10%, so that's all that I'm going to ask you for. So 10% of $100 million, Gee, Monet, we could have some, we could impact some missions, couldn't we? That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Who knows? Somebody from within our own church might rise up and go to the mission field and we take care of all their, all their expenses. Wouldn't that be awesome? Whew. We could, you know how many evangelists we could put on the field out in India? Wow. Oh, my goodness. All kinds of opportunities, isn't it? But the story goes on to say that Post was trying to auction off 17 future payments worth nearly $5 million in order to pay off taxes, legal fees, and a number of failed business ventures. He had plans to spend his life as an ex-winner pursuing lawsuits he has filed against police, judges, and lawyers who say, who he says conspired to take his money. He said, I'm just going to stay at home. I'm a P's and Q's. Money draws flies. <laughs> Those who desire money honestly believe that money will bring them happiness, but it won't. Christina Onassis, the heiress of the Onassis fortune, said, Happiness is not based on money, and the best proof of that is our family. In verse 9, look what Paul says. He says, They fall into a snare. It's a classical Greek uh, word here. It represents a device that brought danger or death, often unexpected Sense of suddenness is, is the Greek word for this phrase. They fall into a snare. In 1 Timothy 3, the words used to describe the snare or trap of the devil. The devil knows how to bait the trap. He knows how to draw us in. And he drops it on us as quick as we're there. David Neff said this in one of his writings. Jesus taught that money is one of the spiritual powers we fight. Not simply green paper of copper nickeled sandwiches. Money is not something, it is someone. And as someone, it tricks us into thinking we master it when inevitably it masters us. Haddon Robinson again said this, money has a way of binding us to what is physical and temporal and blinding us to what is spiritual and eternal. It's a bit like the fly in the flypaper. The fly lands on the flypaper and he says, this is my paper. My flypaper. <laughs> and then the flypaper speaks back, you're my fly. Because see, the fly is dead. <laughs> it's one thing to have money. Another for money to have you. And when it does, Haddon Robinson says, it'll kill you. Fourth thing I want you to take away this morning is that those who make money, their goals, uh, their goal, they're headed for destruction. Because in death, it brings them to destruction. Again, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into, into man foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition, the, King, the new King James says. 
New American Standard calls it ruin and destruction. When the goal of life, when our ambition in life is to become rich, when we become seduced by the God of gold, we begin a journey that takes us down the pathway to destruction and ruin. I listen to these commercials all the time about buy gold, buy gold, buy gold. And I keep thinking, if everybody's buying gold, where's the gold? Do you get to hang on to it? No, 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 we'll keep, we'll hang on to it for you. <laughs> but you get this little piece of paper that says you got some of it. Yay! <laughs> and then you go to collect on your gold, what's going to happen? Oh, I'm sorry, we oversold. But you're not supposed to get upset. You're just supposed to go, oh, shucks, and walk off. Uh-huh. How about that? That's the way Satan works. Money's like a drug. It's alluring, enticing, addictive. Advertisers in our day paint it to be the cure-all and end-all. You don't have to be rich to be stricken with gold fever, with temptation for riches. It's a consuming passion that's never satisfied. I mean, how much is enough? You've never got enough. Mother Teresa said, Once the longing for money comes, the longing also comes for what money can give. Superfluous things, nice rooms, luxuries at the tables, more clothes, fans, you name it. She says, Our needs will increase for one thing brings another and the result will be endless dissatisfaction. This is how it comes. Whenever she was honored, she never stayed long. She always went back to Calcutta to be among the lepers. Because it kept her feet on the ground. The word destruction here in this verse is a word that usually is described to, they use to describe eternal ruin of the soul. It brings death and destruction. In life, it also brings sorrow. Again, verse 10 that we read earlier. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith, pierced themselves with many sorrows. If you had to pick a verse that summed up the scriptural teaching of the love of money, it would be this verse. An excessive desire for money leads to all kinds of evil. It's the taproot that branches out into all kinds of problems. Problems with drugs, with prostitution, with most of the crime in our country. It can be traced back to the love of money. In Juarez, borders El Paso, they're averaging 19 murders a day. All drug related. They shot at, uh, in, in Texas, they shot at the road workers the other day. Did you catch that story? These guys were working on the road going into Mexico and they were blocking it down to one lane. They started firing on those guys so they'd quit work. They started shooting at them. Why? So they could get the drug traffic to move up and get faster and go on through. We've got to stop drug abuse in America. We've got to stop wanting drugs. And if we stop wanting drugs, they'll take them to Venezuela. (laughs) Hugo, let Hugo have them. Praise God. Uh, You wouldn't wish that on anybody. There's a survey entitled, The Day America Told the Truth. It asked people what they'd be willing to do for $10 million. Listen to this. One out of four... 25% said they would abandon their entire family. 23% said they would leave their spouse. 3% of those surveyed said they'd put their kids up for adoption. 
Paul says that some, by longing for for wealth, by desiring it, have wandered away from their faith, pierced themselves with much pain in life. And the word desire here means to stretch oneself out in order to touch or to grasp something. The word for sorrow means consuming grief. A grief, a sorrow, abiding sorrow, distress that knows no reconciliation. And you might be saying, well, preacher, how does that all apply to me? I was, I'm not rich. Oh, 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 no. <laughs> Bill Boyce wrote in the Christian Standard, Dear Lord, I have been rereading the record of the rich young ruler and his obviously wrong choice. But it has set me thinking, no matter how much wealth he had, he could not ride in a car, have any surgery, turn on a light, buy penicillin, hear a pipe organ, watch TV, wash dishes in running water, type a letter, mow a lawn, fly in an airplane, sleep in an inner spring mattress, or talk on the phone. If he was rich, then what am I? We need to give ourselves spiritual checkups, ask tough questions, which is the motivation for my life. And what is the motivation for my life? Am I making money to support my ministry or to feed my personal desires? Christian speaker Tony Campolo said it this way, Nothing is more controversial than to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Nothing is more dangerous than to live out the will of God in today's contemporary world. It changes your whole monetary lifestyle. Let me put it simply this way. If Jesus has $40,000 and knew about the kids who are suffering and dying in third world countries, I wonder what kind of car he would buy. What kind of desire is in your heart? Is money a tool that you use to expand God's kingdom or is it a means of extending your own empire? John MacArthur, great preacher and and, and writer, put in his excellent commentary in 1 Timothy uh, five practical principles from verse 8. Let me give them to you as Phyllis comes back to the keyboard. First, believers must consciously realize that the Lord owns everything they have. That we are merely stewards of their, of those possessions. Purchases should be evaluated as to how they would advance the kingdom or make one's ministry more effective. Secondly, believers must cultivate a thankful heart. Since God owes them nothing, anything they receive from Him should be, should, should make them thankful. Number three, believers must learn to distinguish wants from needs and that principle, if followed, would greatly increase the amount of money available for the Lord's work. Number four, Believers must discipline themselves to spend less than they make. I wish our government would catch on to this. The ease of buying things on credit has become a severe temptation. I'll just raise the debt ceiling. It's okay. Hey, I want you to try that with Visa. I tried to get a lower interest rate. Good luck. Even Even if you don't even owe anything on that credit card, they still won't give you a lower interest rate. Not a thing. Then lastly, believers must be sacrificially givers and giving to the Lord. Laying up treasure in heaven for the work of the kingdom should be their highest joy and source of greatest reward. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time this morning that we could just come here and for a brief moment consider consider where we are with you god my prayer is that everyone in this room will have such a relationship with you that no matter what it is that you've called them to do they will sense the opportunity they will seize the opportunity and they will grow because of it god i'm praying that each person in this room 
will consider where they are with you and their, and, and their money. Our money is not our money, it's your money. If we want to hang on to it, there's a price to pay. If we want to give it away, there's a greater blessing waiting. So God, I just want to challenge people to do a little more than they're doing now, which will be more than they were doing yesterday. And God, they may be such in such financial straits that they can't give money. There's always time and there's always talent. And so God, would you impress upon each heart that just because I don't have money to give, I do have other things I can give. And so Father, I could be an encourager. I could be a note writer. I could make phone calls. I can send emails. I can send text messages. God, I can, I can, I can call and pray for people. I can go see them and pray for them. You see, God, there's ways that we can give and we, we don't even, we, we limit you sometimes. But Father, I just pray that you will wrestle with the hearts of your people here and that they'll understand there's so much that they can give and be a blessing. And then not only be a blessing, but receive blessing as well. So God, if there's somebody here today that just needs to, to, to tighten that up, to tighten that walk with you, I just pray that you'll help them respond during our invitation time. In Jesus' name, amen.